Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Hi there, my name's Luke Hallam. I'm an associate editor at Persuasion, and I've just published an article called Reasons for Optimism in 2023 with one eye on fresh dangers. So essentially, I take us through three reasons why I think we should be optimistic about 2023, and I temper them by saying there are all these other reasons why we should be maybe be a bit pessimistic. The first reason for optimism is that Donald Trump failed at the ballot box in 2022. The midterms showed this really clearly. Mega candidates are not doing well. So that's a good reason to be optimistic about the state of liberal democracy. The flip side of that is that there are all these worrying philosophies appearing on the new right, as some people call it. These are following in Trump's wake. They're questioning things like the rule of law and the separation of church and state. So even if MAGA as a political force isn't doing very well, intellectual energy on the political right is really with these authoritarian ideologues. And that's something we definitely need to keep an eye on in the year ahead. The second reason for optimism is that global authoritarianism really had a bad year in 2022. So Putin's war machine ground to a halt in Ukraine at the same time as the brave people of Iran and China started to really fight back against their regimes. The reverse side of that is that Taiwan is feeling really vulnerable at the moment. So China may choose to invade in order to unify it with the authoritarian mainland. Taiwan is currently democracy. This would be a calamitous, especially if the US enters and a global hot war is triggered. So despite the fact that global authoritarianism is not having a great year, we really need to keep an eye on Taiwan. Third reason for optimism is that scientists make great leap forwards, especially in the final quarter of 2022. We had the Artemis space program, which is going to take us back to the moon. And scientists finally generated a net energy yield from nuclear fusion. We shouldn't underestimate how great this is. A lot of people think we can't have innovation. A lot of people think progress has stalled. These breakthroughs in the hard science really put those arguments to rest. At the same time, you know, people point out that big tech is in crisis. Elon Musk and social media and Twitter, they all had a big meltdown. NFTs and cryptocurrencies, they came and went. I argue that overall, these things aren't as important as the real progress that's being made in the hard sciences. So taking all these points in the big picture, 2022, I think, really felt like a turning point. The main story since 2016 has been the rise of these authoritarian ideologies. But now people are really fighting back. They're fighting back on the streets, in the trenches and at the ballot box. This, more than all the other reasons, is why we should be optimistic going into 2023. Thanks very much. Luke Hallam's piece, called Reasons for Optimism in 2023, was published by Persuasion. To learn more about the community we're building at Persuasion and to get similar articles directly into your inbox, head to www.persuasion.community. My guest today is Tabata Amarao. I've gotten to know Tabata a little bit over the last months, and she is a very impressive rising 
politician in Brazil. We talked a little bit about her compelling personal story, growing up in a very poor neighborhood in Sao Paulo, making her way through the educational system because of her skills in math and winning math Olympiads, getting to Harvard University and going on to be one of the youngest ever Congress people in Brazil for a center-left political party. It's given me a much deeper understanding of some of the social dynamics in Brazil, what it is like to grow up in poverty and with real challenges in the country. But a lot of the conversation, of course, was simply about Brazilian politics, understanding the danger posed by Jair Bolsonaro and why it is that he continues to have real support, but the opposition did manage to oust him and Lula was ultimately inaugurated as president without large-scale violence. Thinking through how people like Tabata can fight for progressive values, but without making people feel that the left looks down on them, without deepening the social divisions, something that Tabata has learned in part through her personal conversations with relatives and family members who support Jair Bolsonaro. It is rare to have somebody on the podcast for whom you can say you probably have never heard about her uh, before, unless you happen to follow Brazilian politics in some detail, but you will definitely hear about her again. Tabata is one of those people. Tabata Amarau, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm really glad to be here. I really look forward to talking. We had the pleasure of meeting when we did an event together at the Obama Foundation Summit on Democracy about a month ago. And, you know, I thought you had so many interesting things to say and you would be the perfect person to explain Brazil to our audience. So people were very, very worried about Bolsonaro possibly being re-elected and possibly refusing to accept the outcome of a presidential elections. As we speak, it looks pretty good. Tell us a little bit about the state of Brazilian democracy at this crucial hinge moment. Well, Brazil is a complex country. And for sure, we are living, going through one of the most complex moments in our recent history. So I'll do my best in trying to explain what's going on. And just to say that, as I told you when we met, I'm a big admirer of your work. I'm a reader of what you write, so I'm really honored to be here. Well, we were able, and I say we because it was a very broad coalition to beat Bolsonaro in the voting booth, but it was a very tight election. So there were two rounds, and that's how it works in Brazilian federal elections. And in the second round, there were almost 120 million voters, and the difference was only 2 million votes. And this, after everything my country went through, all the hundreds of thousands of deaths that could be avoided in COVID, all the deforestation, all the attacks against journalists, this after Bolsonaro claimed himself in his words, and this is recorded, that if he was going to win, he would increase the Supreme Court size, the same uh, Chavez did in Venezuela. I say that because it's shocking to me that so many people still voted for Bolsonaro after those four years. And why do you think that is? I want to get to why the opposition managed to beat him later. But why did Bolsonaro, despite being quite unpopular, despite having a very rocky time in office, why was he able to sustain the support of about 49% of the people who went to the election a few months ago? I also want to hear your opinion on that. 
But I think there are many factors that are working right now. So even though, yes, things have been pacific, I think I can say that after the second round, there are still thousands of people in front of military facilities asking for a military intervention. I think about a week and a half ago, uh, some of Bolsonaro's supporters, they put fire on cars here in Brasilia, where I am right now, and they tried to invade, to occupy the hotel where Lula was staying. And I say that because maybe that shows us what's going on. There are this big junk of the population that doesn't feel democracy matters or works for them, that doesn't seem to be voting because of economic reasons. Our economy did really bad in the last four years. And it doesn't seem to be only about corruption either. So the big thing, if you ask someone, why do people vote for Bolsonaro and why do they hate the PT, the Labour Party? They'll tell you that it's because of corruption. PT was so corrupt in power that they cannot support PT. But if you are a little bit more careful, actually, the biggest corruption scandal of the last decades is happening right now under Bolsonaro. It's called the secret budget. Yesterday, the Supreme Court ruled the secret budget inconstitutional. So it was a, a huge move to leave it th this way. So I think it's less about corruption, less about the economy, and not so much about what people tell you in the polls, and more about all the changes that Brazil went through that made people feel they didn't belong anymore, that people didn't care about them. So I think Bolsonaro was an answer not only to PT, the Labour Party, and the good and the bad things that they did in power, but it was more an answer to the whole system. Like, you guys from the left to the right, you don't represent us, you are so corrupt that we would prefer to implode the system than to support any of you. Because, yes, the PT was defeated in the previous election, but the center-right parties were too, like PSDB. So I have the feeling that it's more about we don't like any of you. We don't want democracy and institutions and all those things that don't represent us. And it's becoming to be a very long answer. So I will finish, conclude by saying that Brazil is changing. Some decades ago, someone like me who comes from a poor background, who is a woman, would not be here in Congress. And I think those changes are scary to some people because Brazil did not do well in terms of the economy. Some people will blame those changes and saying that they are being left behind. But I think the, the most important point is that some people feel there's a lot of arrogance in those in power. And the whole being politically correct and you cannot say that anymore. You cannot think like that. I'm better than you. I'm morally more evolved. And I think that those things really speak to the mind and to the heart of those people in terms of identity and who they are. And stop supporting Bolsonaro in some way will be denying their own identity. There's a lot on the table there. That's super interesting. Let me pass a few of those things out. So the first is, I think I agree with you that wherever these populist insurgents win, a big part of the reason is that the existing 
government or the existing political establishment has lost this trust of people, right? There's always this throw the bums out. We don't trust anybody. You're the same. And so the more shocking a newcomer is, the more different they are from a political class, the more they're denounced by the existing political forces in the media, the more appealing they are nearly by definition. Because if all these people I distrust hate this person, there must be something okay about them. And I think there was clearly a dynamic of that with Donald Trump in 2016. There was clearly a dynamic of that with Bolsonaro when he first was elected five years ago. I also find plausible your account of those social and cultural changes, but I guess I have a question about that, because this fits easily in a narrative, as you might tell it in the United States or in some parts of Europe, where these far-right populist parties are supported mostly by the people who used to be dominant in society, or at least who used to have a relatively good position in society. So let's say people who in the United States might have been members of a country club who are quite affluent and suddenly they feel like their town is declining, they're not as affluent as their parents, where there's all of the socioeconomic changes, there's moral changes they don't like, and so on and so forth. More broadly, you can say it's a sort of declining white population, which wants to assert its dominance, preserve its dominance as they are sort of getting to be the minority. That's the sort of story that's often told about this, right? And I guess my question is, does that fit in Brazil? Because as I understand it, there are some people like that who support Bolsonaro. It is interesting that he is one of the very few populists who does better in affluent parts of the country, in the country south, than in less affluent parts of the country, like the country's north. But it also seems to be a lot more complicated than that, right? My understanding is Bolsonaro also does quite well in the favelas, that there's a lot of people who are not white who support Bolsonaro very strongly. So does that story of rebelling against cultural change fit for those voters? Because they themselves seem to be part of a cultural change, right? I would say yes and no, (laughs) in the sense that for me, it does play a role in Brazil, but maybe to a lesser extent than in the U.S., And I say that because, yes, there are many people who just don't want to get used to the idea that now we have more Black people, more women, more young people, more people who come from the peripheries occupying their place in politics. And I say that with a lot of certainty because of all the life threats I have received myself and all the hate. It has a lot to do with what I represent and not so much with how I vote. It's like, you shouldn't be there. Like, uh, we, we won't allow it. But as you already mentioned, there are lots of poor people, Black people, working people who support Bolsonaro. I come from a very large family. My mom has 26 siblings. And I have many uncles who support Bolsonaro. And none of my uncles had the opportunity of attending college. Many could not finish high school. So it's not about we don't want the poor to do well. And I see that it has more to do with their identity, like their moral identity, that they feel are threatened. So I come from a religious community. I come from a very conservative family. And I remember I went to Harvard for college and I remember the first time I went back home and I had understood myself as a progressive woman and I had all those ideas and all those beautiful words in my mouth. And at first I was very arrogant with people who were around me. And I remember pointing my finger and saying, you are bad. What you said is unacceptable. And a friend told me that Harvard was brainwashing me. 
And I felt very bad because I, I want to belong in my community. And I had uh, to find my way of being very strong in my positions against sexism, against racism and homophobia and so on, but not acting as if I was better than my family members or my friends. I just was going through a very different path, a very different journey. And I say that because I feel that not only when the left was in power, the changes were not so big. But like there were some changes. There are more black women and poor people in university right now and flying and so on. And I think those people were like, okay, this is too much. But it's more than that. It's about like suddenly they feel you cannot say some things. You cannot act as if you are. And no one is giving you a good reason. They are just pointing fingers at you and saying you don't belong in this new society anymore. And it's a really hard dialogue. This campaign was extremely hard to me because I'm still a religious person. I still go to church every Sunday. And I remember in my first election in 2018, religion was not a thing in my election. Like people liked me or not. They liked my ideas or not. And in this election, I saw my church divided in two. And some people were telling me that I should no longer go to church because I voted for Lula or that I was denying all my Catholic teachings and so on. That's unacceptable. So I think to summarize, some black poor evangelicals will vote for Bolsonaro because they have this feeling that Bolsonaro represents their family values in a context in which they feel the left especially is threatening their family values. And my father, he had drug addiction, and it's a very big problem in the favelas and in the poor communities. And I myself never felt that the left had anything to offer to my father. So here, if you are a poor person, you cannot be in clinics unless they are religious ones. So those are the clinics that my father could refer to. And the left will only speak about legalizing drugs, which is a very important theme when you talk about uh, security policies, but it's not a health policy. Like you turn to me, you turn to my mom and you say, okay, we'll solve everything. We will legalize drugs. I myself can even have that conversation, but the only thing I want to know is how you make sure that young people in the favelas won't have access to drugs, that those who are already sick will have treatment. So in that sense, I think the discussion has become so much about Twitter and so elitized that people are like, okay, you just want to destroy our families and you have nothing of concrete to offer us. So when you talk to your uncles who voted for Bolsonaro, when you go back to that community that feels that the left is missing some important part of social reality there, how do you try to do better? How do you try to argue for your values, try to persuade people, but without making the mistake you might have made when you were back from your first academic year at Harvard, without falling into what you call this elitized discourse, where you know you're just lecturing people and the reaction understandably is just going to be you don't understand anything about who we are and what we're talking about and go back to your twitter bubble how do you manage to walk the tightrope so i think the first thing is not act as if i was better and i don't remember fighting with anyone in my family or my friend circle because of the election and that's really rare to find in brazil like I'm still friends with those people because they are not fascists. They are not what Bolsonaro is like. They voted for Bolsonaro. They are not Bolsonaro. And 
for me, it's more like I won't stop talking to them because of that. And I will be hurt by some of the things they say, especially some of my uncles. But for me, it's more like trying to understand where they come from. So for instance, there is this person who in my family who came from Bahia, as my mom did, who worked really hard to maintain his small business. And he has this feeling that the whole system is against him, that left and right are united to make sure they pay as much as uh, he can to the government. So he is that in the middle of that thing that he doesn't receive the basic income funds, but he works really hard to pay for private medical care, to private education to his children. And he just feel like the whole system is there to steal and uh, to do bad by his family. And I tried to argue to him that they are not all the same. So I'm not like, you are wrong. I'm more like, yes, I understand. It sucks. It's horrible. but. Bolsonaro is also stealing and Bolsonaro is also corrupt. You cannot say that he's different. Look at that, that, at that. And they are not all the same. Like, you know me, you know how I'm doing my work. Like, there are some different people there. But I always try to explain to them that my life is more in danger because of Bolsonaro. And all the times he and his sons went uh, with fake news about myself. So that's how I deal with my family, I guess. But in public, it has more to do with like showing what Bolsonaro really is. So I was one of the authors of the thing that was judged by the Supreme Court saying that the secret budget was unconstitutional. And one of my daily job is to tell people all the corruption that's going on in this government. More in the same that I don't think that we have sense in the left and the right. Many horrible things have happened, but it's important to understand that Bolsonaro is not different. He's doing the same or worse with many more additions in terms of his authoritarianism and his violence. You've alluded a few times to a personal story, but, you know, I'd have to hear a little bit more about it. So you grew up in a poor family, in a very large family and a very religious community. What has been your path from you know, a community that's far from power, that's far from influence, to being, you know, one of the youngest Congress people in Brazil. How did you go from A to B? So my story is a story about education from the beginning to the end. I come from a very typical family in Sao Paulo. Both my parents, their families come from the Northeast, which is the poorest region of Brazil. My mom, she got pregnant when she was in high school and she was not supported by my biological father. She then met my father was the most amazing person I've met in my life, but who was a very sick person. So my father had bipolarism. He had drug addiction and very normal to my context, very hard in general. And for us, church was always a very important presence. And I think that's what made me understand that you cannot just say that oh, the problems with the church, because the church is also the solution in those poor communities. So the ones who supported us with food when we needed, it was in church that I spent all my weekends doing service and learning and so on. And I had a very unique opportunity with a math Olympiad when I was 11 years old. Uh, this national big math Olympiad that was created by the Ministry of Science Technology, Eduardo Campos, during uh, the Lula government. And I got a scholarship because of a medal in the private school and my life changed for good. 
And so how were you selected to participate in this math Olympiad? You were sort of in a state primary school and some teacher realized that you were talented at math or what was sort of even the path to get to the math Olympiad? So it's a very great policy because all public school students, they are invited to participate. So it's the biggest Olympiad in the world. The numbers have reached to 18 million students participating. So I was just like normal day in school. I had a great math teacher who decided to prepare some students to that competition, but no one really understood what it was about. And I got first a silver medal and then a gold medal when I was in sixth grade and seventh grade. And just one comment about the Bolsonaro government. They have cut all the funds for the Olympiads. And peace Congress members, they uh, tell how a part of the budget will be used. And every year I put a huge junk of my budget in those Olympiads because they do transform lots of lives. So that's how I end up in a private school for scholarship. It didn't take so much time for my teachers to understand that I was in a special condition that I would need more than the scholarship. So they started to take care of my food and my public transportation tickets and the clothes that I didn't have to attend things. So I had many great teachers who were my friends and my supporters. They were the ones that told me about Harvard and MIT, who got this scholarship for me to study English when I was in high school, who supported me to participate in all sorts of Olympiads. So I received over 40 medals. I wanted to be an astrophysicist. I traveled the world competing for Brazil. And I had that very strong, like, I'm going to be a scientist, and that's my life. And then four days after I got into Harvard with a full scholarship, I lost my father to drug addiction. And of course, it was really hard. And for a few days, I gave up on the idea of attending Harvard or any college at all. But again, my teachers were there for me, and they were very emphatic in saying that if I didn't go, it might take very long until another student coming from where I come from had the same opportunity. I went, I switched my major from astrophysics to government, and I decided at some point that I wanted to work with education to the rest of my life. I have been a teacher, I have organized young people movements, I have been a radio commentator to speak about education. I've done a few things, and at some point I was very pissed off with politics and politicians. I was very tired of knocking on doors and people receiving me during the elections and not receiving me afterwards, saying they would do something and giving up later or just not caring and like acting as if they didn't care because they didn't attend public school. Their children didn't attend public school. And I think this desire to affiliate to a party and to run came more as an answer like, okay. I'm fed up. <laughs> How you run? And I, I was sure I wouldn't win, but I just could not keep acting as if I believed things would change uh, if it was not true politics. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's how I got there in summary. That makes sense. And like a good politician, you do end up with your political mission at the end. But I want to go back one or two steps. You know, when you arrived with private school, what was that like? Because it feels to me like a lot of people who've made sort of a rapid socioeconomic transition within their own lives, you're sort of native to two different Brazils, right? You're native to a, a poorer Brazil with very limited opportunity where problems like drug addiction are very, very present. But then also at a relatively young age, I take it that when you were 11 or 12, 
you became a kind of member of this much more privileged Brazil of people who have these opportunities. And you were sort of half a member of it, right? You had the scholarship, you were able to go to that school. But of course, I imagine that in some ways you were an outsider because you were not offered. Your parents didn't do the same things as the parents of a classmate. What was that experience like? Did you feel included? Did you feel like an outsider? Was it schizophrenic to have this sense of being these two very, very different milieus and wandering the day and the other when you went home? What did that feel like? It's fun because I found out about inequality because I always assumed that most people lived like my family. And we have family members who did worse, who did better. But I always had that feeling that it was us and that's how people would live their lives. And even though I was born and raised in Sao Paulo, I didn't know like the monuments and the big avenues. And I had only been to Bahia, my mom's state, in a bus trip. So I remember when I first went to Ibirapuera, which is the biggest park of Sao Paulo, or when I first stepped in Paulista Avenue, which is a very important avenue in my city. And I was like, okay, this exists and nobody told us. And I had that guilty on me because I got a scholarship in the private school and my brother didn't get any scholarship. And my brother went his whole high school without one chemistry lesson. And he had uh, later to get a scholarship to attend a prep school because there was no way he would pass into the university test with what he had in public school. And I always had that uh, guilty and asking myself, why am I here and my brother's not? Why am I here and my colleagues back from the public school are not? And it was really hard <laughs> because I didn't belong to that place. And after a few years, it was clear to me that I was not the typical kid in the private school. I had to work. I had to do embroidery. I had to take three, four hours of buses. I didn't know Disneyland. I didn't know the museums. It was a very elite school. So I didn't belong there. And it was really hard to make friends. And all my friends were basically from the Olympians and like the outcasts, those who didn't fit like me. <laughs> but my teachers helped me and I could get through. But after a few years, I started realizing that it was not as easy to belong in my community either because I was talking about different stuff. So a few years later, I started having family members, friends who got pregnant very early, who dropped out of school because they had to work, who just were in very different moments of life. And I sometimes feel I carry this feeling with me up to this day that I'm not the typical young woman from the periphery. I speak four languages. I'm white. I had all sorts of privileges, but I don't ever feel I will belong to these elite places that I occupy sometimes. And I had that feeling at Harvard too. I was in the, considered the best university in the world and I'm, I'll be always grateful for that. But I never had money to go to restaurants. I had to work through my whole university as a babysitter to send money home. I could not do all the expensive trips. So it was really hard. I think the difference is now that things are so divided in Brazil. It's clear to me how much this experience has taught me. I'm very well known in Brazil for cheering for dialogue, for saying that it's important. And many people think that it has to do with politics, but I had to learn how to be in a family reunion with my friends back home and be very careful not to sound arrogant again, because the experiences I have access to 
many of them never heard about because of how unequal this country is. But I also have this constant feeling that I also don't belong here in Congress. I'm so different from my colleagues. And I'm not saying I'm better or worse. I'm just very different. The way I do politics, the things I stand for. So I think sometimes it hurts. We are human and we want to belong everywhere we are. But I also have this feeling that learning to put these fancy places and my community inside myself were the best practice I could have to try to be a bridge in this moment that Brazil is so divided. You've talked a little bit about what it was like to arrive at that private school. You got a scholarship to. What was it like to arrive at Harvard? Did you feel that you were welcome? Did you feel that the university actually is doing a good job of engaging with what's going on in the world? Did you find that fellow progressives at Harvard had a sense of what's going on outside or were they sort of preoccupied with their own relatively provincial problems? Tell us a little bit about your experience as an undergrad in, you know, in a new country, in a very different social stratum. What was that like? So when I first got to Harvard, first, I didn't want to be there because I had just lost my father. And I had this guilty feeling bigger than ever, like my father passed away and I'm here. Why is this happened to me? And that was very important for me to decide to work for education because it was the biggest answer and the best answer I could give to that inequality. And I say that because I think I started hard with this big feeling that I didn't belong there that I somehow it was a twisted, not funny plot from life. And I think Harvard did a good job in terms of providing me with what I needed to survive. And remember, I come from a place where those things were even like they're not discussed. It was at Harvard that I learned to tell my story and that I should be proud of it, that everything we went through as a family, there were not reasons for us to feel guilty or to feel ashamed, but the contrary. It was at Harvard, I realized that I shouldn't hide the fact that I had a scholarship. So at Harvard, they had this very cool thing that you could attend five events per semester and the university would pay for it. And remember, I come from a place where my teachers had to put their money to make sure that I would be eating, that I would be taking the bus. So all the basic needs were taken care of. Like I had the dining hall, I had one plane ticket per year. So when I was there, I was very grateful. I was like, okay, I got $100 to buy a coat. So that was like my first impression. Like this place is working really hard to make sure that I belong here. After a few years, <laughs> I'm a little bit more critic of this whole thing. And I think that's because I don't feel as guilty as I felt in the past. And also some years have passed. And I can see how hard college was to me. Like it was no fun. I had to work my entire college and I wrote a thesis I was doing all those clubs and I was doing everything and I had to work so much more than my colleagues because I wanted to pay for the second ticket to see my mom during winter break we had just lost my father like I needed to be there and my mom was unemployed so I just have this feeling that if I was in charge of it I would do a little bit more to make sure that students like me they would be closer to have the same experience as others. Like I spent my four years at college making all these small sums. Like if I buy this cookie, 
I won't be able to buy this thing that I really need. If I buy this book, and that takes a lot of your mental efforts, I would say. So again, I'm very grateful. Harvard did so much better than any university is prepared to do in Brazil in terms of including students. And I always say like now there are many more poor kids like me who go to Harvard than there were like, I think I was one of the first ones. And I always tell them like, if you need, you should take a loan. Don't work that hard. You'll be able to pay things back after you leave college. Just because today I'm more critic about how romanticized some stories are told. There is nothing nice about me working so much while I was trying to go through college. It's not nice about me spending so much uh, mental effort to make sure I wouldn't be out of money in the middle of the month. I had this feeling that people were doing so much to include me. But at the end of the day, all my friends, they are internationals or sons and daughters of international people. I wasn't able to make one single American friend who was like the son or the daughter of Americans. And I don't say that to blame the American people, but I think it speaks about the dynamics at those universities. I remember like my English was really bad when I got into Harvard. Like I just barely passed the test. I could understand when an American was speaking. It was really hard in the beginning. And I had that feeling that I was always apologizing for my English. And people are always like pointing fingers and they're not patient and they wouldn't say that twice. So I think it's more about society than about Harvard and maybe more about American society than the Harvard. It, if it was today with the confidence I have, the first thing I would reply is like, do you speak Portuguese? Do you speak Spanish? <laughs> like when you speak Portuguese as well as I do, you can criticize my English. But back then, I just felt that someone was doing so much and they were doing so much. But I had that feeling that I didn't deserve it, that I wasn't in a position to question anything. So I think they did a very good job and I'm very grateful in trying to include me. But clearly there are limits to how much someone who is poor is included. Like I was not friends with those people who are in the fraternities and whatever, <laughs> and the eating club and all those things that Princeton and Harvard have. Those are the universities I know more. But I made my best friends for life. Just that they were not Americans and they didn't come from those rich, famous families. So maybe that will be the next step, making sure that we are really take the extra smiles to make sure that people don't feel someone is always doing more than they deserve. You talk about coming from a very religious community and my understanding is that you're Catholic. My imagination of Brazil is as one of the most Catholic countries in the world. And I imagine that a lot of listeners to this podcast will have this image of Brazil, which was true 30 or 40 years ago. But the religious landscape in Brazil has changed radically, right? We're now, depending on the different statistics you look at, I understand that nearly 40% of evangelicals. And it may be that Brazil will, within a relatively short number of years, have a majority of evangelicals. Tell us a little bit about this phenomenon. You know, what is the cause of this deep social and religious transformation? And how does it explain some of the political trends we see? How does that interact with the strength of somebody like Bolsonaro? So I am a Catholic, but I think I can speak a little bit about that because my church, in many senses, is not very different from an evangelical church. It's a church very rooted in the community, in the poor community. 
So like there are no rich people attending my church. The majority of the people there are black. We have all the dancing and all the singing. And I even remember like the first times I went to a mass at like churches who were more in the center of Sao Paulo. It didn't feel like my cult because there are so many blonde people <laughs> and people are not dancing and they're not like singing. <laughs> they're so serious. So I think that I can speak about the experience of attending a church in the periphery. And of course, there are differences between evangelicals and Catholics, and then we'll have to invite an evangelical to the conversation. But to me, it was all we had. Like Brazil has many social policies, but not all of them reach people. Right now, we have, in theory, a basic income that guarantees that people have up to 600 reais per family. But we have 30 million people who are in hunger at this moment. So many policies for us to change. But I remember that when we needed it, it was the church who provided us with meat and food. Even up to this day, there is no single cultural or sports or anything fun facility near my house, public facility. And it was a church that we had all those competitions and sports and uh, language lessons and like all those group meetings and choirs and whatever. So it was all we had to do. And because of my father's addiction, my mom was so scared that me and my brother would like fulfill the words of our family members and go through that path that she made sure we were in church every single hour uh, we had to spare. So I think churches have this thing that they give you a community. They give you support when you need. They give your children what to do. And of course, there are some very conservative parts of church, even in the Catholic church. I remember I had this experience, one very particular branch, that the reality they were portraying, like it was so homophobic, so sexist, that even I was like, okay, okay, this is not what Jesus is teaching me. So there are those horrible things. But church is so much more about positive things to me and like a community. And when left leaders, they worked so arrogant. I have received so many bad jokes in Twitter because I always have religious things on me. And people will be like, okay, you are not smart enough. And they'll call me all those names. So there is this idea that if you are rich and enlightened and you have studied so much, you cannot be religious. Like you, you can... It is like bullshit. You should not be listened to it. And I think the only reason why people have such a bad image of churches, like only bad image, is because they have never attended a church like mine. They have never been there to see what it's like. So again, it doesn't scare me the fact that evangelicals will be the majority. And I think it's really, really bad that some left leaders will put it as a threat to democracy. Like it's ridiculous. It just scares me the fact that churches are the only thing that people have to go to. When we have sports facilities, when we have government helping people get their jobs, help people get their education, get their basic needs attended, I think we'll have a healthier relationship between those communities and their church because then church can attend to the spiritual needs of people and not to all their needs as it happens today. Because if you live in a place like where I live, many places you can counter on crime or church. You cannot count on the state. And I think that's what we should be concerned about and not the fact that evangelicals will surpass Catholics in numbers. So now there's a new government coming in. And I have the sense that you feel a little 
bit ambivalent about it in the sense that you are very, very happy that Bolsonaro is out of office, campaigned for Lula. But you also have some concerns about how Lula will govern and the new government and its ability to overcome that divide you're talking about rather than deepen it and make it worse. So what do you think we should expect for Brazil in the coming five years? And what are the choices that the new president can do right or wrong? Where are the points where you really hope he's going to take path A, but you're worried that he might take path B? So I'm a hopeful person in general. <laughs> I'm working and I'm cheering that my country does well because people are tired. There is a limit of how much suffering a country can go through, a person can go through. But I'm mostly scared, even though I'm really hopeful, that some people haven't learned their lesson. Bolsonaro was elected for a reason. People distrust parties and politicians for very good reasons. And we haven't had one single government since redemocratization that was not corrupt. And I'm not saying the presidents were involved themselves, but that had very, very big corruption scandals. And the thing with Bolsonaro and Trump and all those authoritarian leaders that make us all unite to defeat them is that the threat is so big that we stop to look at smaller things. So we were so focused on defeating Bolsonaro, and I think that was the right thing to do, that I'm not sure if my elderly politics took the time to understand why Bolsonaro was elected and what role they played in that election. So, yes, we prefer anything than Bolsonaro, but Brazil was not perfect before Bolsonaro. People wanted change. They went to the streets in 2013 asking for change. One change is related to corruption and the fight against corruption. We just had an event last week that uh, Congress, because there was the Supreme Court voting going on to end or not the secret budget, which is like 20 billion reais that are in the hands of politicians in Congress. And we have no idea what they do with that money, like it's from our budget. So while the voting was happening in the Supreme Court, Congress trying to pass a law changing some of the mechanisms to make sure that they would make the judging like not to have an impact because they changed the written of the law. So sort of to, to do an end run around the Supreme Court, so that even if the Supreme Court rules that this has been unconstitutional or illegal, they can continue keeping up the secret budget. And I was very pissed off because I have spent the last two years and a half fighting against that. And Lula supporters and Bolsonaro supporters voted the same. And I was so angry. And why is that? Because this budget is just something that gives whoever is in power a lot of ability to be corrupt, to push through projects they want. Why is it that in this very polarized political system, supporters of both Lula and Bolsonaro voted for this together? The secret budget was very important for Bolsonaro's election process. Because it's 20 billion reais, it's a big junk of the public budget that's in the hands of those who are the presidents, who are the leaders of both chambers. And there is no transparency in how that money is used. So a handful of parliamentary members will tell which municipalities will receive that money. And that's because it's unconstitutional. And the mayors, for example, they don't have to tell back society how they use the money. And there are all sorts of accusations and scandals saying that one municipality put in their records that they had taken out 90 thieves per citizen. 
no one cares. And there is this other corruption scandal of those robotic kits that were super overpriced that they were trying to buy for schools that didn't have internet access or water in some cases. So there is no transparency. And there are many reasons for me, a journalist, to believe that 50% of that money is going to the pockets of politicians. Wow. But the leaders of the Chamber of Deputies and the Senate, they will support whoever is in power. That's what we call the Centrum. The physiologists are part of our Congress. And they use that money in some sense to support Bolsonaro's trial of re-election. But they use that money to support whoever is in power. But again, we spent the last years saying that this was the biggest corruption scandal, that we needed to defeat Bolsonaro to end uh, or summit secreto, the secret budget. And then when we finally have an opportunity, most of PT's base votes with the secret budget. What's the message that that sends to the population? That they are all the same. You might put Bolsonaro together with them. You should. But they are all the same. And I voted against it. We lost by 18 votes or something like that. But the Supreme Court insisted and said that regardless of how the law is written, it's still illegal. It's still unconstitutional. So yeah, this was a big defeat to Congress leaders. This is the first day after it. So I have to tell you after in a later podcast what happens. But that's what I'm scared about. Corruption, I think, is not the major reason why people voted for Bolsonaro, because he's corrupt too. But it was one big reason. We cannot just give that reason again and say that the system is corrupt, that you should implode the system. The second thing I'm scared is that, again, Brazil has changed in the last 20 years. So between Lula's first inauguration and the inauguration that's going to happen January 1st, there are 20 uh, years. And we have more women, we have more Black people, we have so much more diversity in general. And I'm scared that they will go with the same players. They will invite the same people. And we'll see the same uh, old white rich men in power, just that they are older now. And we are still waiting for the announcements of the ministries. But I think among everyone they announced, only one is a woman and only one is a black person. So that's also one thing that I'm scared because I think that the two are connected. If you have only one type of representation in the executive, those people, they don't connect with the real people. They don't connect with my community. They don't have the perception that corruption matters to people, that some girls would miss schools because they don't have access to uh, sanitary pads, which was one of my biggest fights here in Congress. So I'm just scared that they will be just out of touch with the population as they were before and that people just get more and more and more mad. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, I, I haven't spent as much time in Brazil as in some other countries in South America, but in whichever country you're in, when you meet the political elite, it's easy to get the sense that they're a little bit out of touch. I've always had that sense in a more extreme way in South America than in just about any other part of the world. I mean, the extent to which a kind of you know, traditional ruling class is able to insulate itself from the realities in the country and the rest of the population just seems extreme to me in many countries in South America. And that's perhaps especially true on the right, but it is also true 
on the left. One measure of this is the length of speeches that politicians give. You know, I've rarely been in occasions where, you know, some dignitary is supposed to open a conference or some kind of event, and they just go over the allotted speaking time by quite as much as elected politicians tend to in South America. And I think that's a little bit of a sign of the insulation from somebody saying, hey, hang on a second, you know, people are getting bored. You should probably be responsive to that. It's a very silly metric, but I think it's a telling metric about a wider sort of sense of entitlement and, and insulation. What about the basic ideological direction of a new government, both on economics and on foreign policy? The coalition with which Lula has come to power is, as I understand it, very broad. It includes center-left people like you, uh, and it includes also people who are far further to the left. So it includes people who, like you, are very critical of how Hugo Chavez and his successors have transformed Venezuela. And it also includes people whose sympathies seem to lie in some ways with a government in Venezuela, with a government in, in Cuba. What can we expect on economic policy and what can we expect on foreign policy, on the attitude towards those far-left governments in Latin America that we really have done a lot of damage over the next five years? I think first, just one comment. I'm here highlighting all the things I'm scared of because I think there are enough people to upload and that someone has to say, hey, don't go through this path. It didn't work last time. But I do think that President Lula is a broad person in the sense that in previous governments, he even invited people who didn't support him to be ministers. And he always tried to have like broad governments. And he's also someone who knows hunger, who attended a technical school. And I carry this belief that this matters, like the experience you went through yourself. That being said, PT, the Labour Party, was elected in a much broader coalition this time than in 2002 or 2006, the first Lula's government. And I think the direction of the economy and the foreign policy and everything that really matters in a federal government will depend on how much this broad coalition is present in government. Because yes, there were people, even the extreme left, who defined communism and revolutions and so on. It's definitely not my case. There are people in the center left, but there's like important political leaders from the center right who supported Lula in the second round. And up to this point, we are not sure whether these people have a voice in the future government or not. But I have this belief with me that a politician should know how they got elected, should know their basis. And it's really important to me. I was not elected with social media and I have lost 100,000 followers after one single vote. But I had this belief that they didn't represent my voters. And I think I was quite right because I was able to increase my election this time. And I just say that because I'm praying that the future government remembers how they were elected. They were elected in the broadest coalition Brazil has seen in the last decades, at least. And this broad coalition should be in government, should be in power, should be saying something because Lula represents those people too. The government represents those people too. That's not exactly what we have seen up to this now with the minister's announcement. There are great ministers, but they are closer to the Labour Party than those who haven't been announced yet. And I think if Lula is as broad as he has been in his life and as a genius as he has been throughout his political life, he will fight for some space with his party to make sure that those people are in government too. 
And then we should expect to have economic and foreign policies closer to what we had in Lula. Uh, Lula basically continued to FHC economic policies. Things changed a lot with Dilma. But under Lula, they were more like a center vision of the economy, a moderate vision, I would say. And in terms of foreign policies, yes, I'm really mad when left leaders will just not acknowledge how terrible is what's happening in Ukraine or the very bad humanitarian crisis we have in Venezuela. But PT was very democratic in power every single time it was in power. So that's what I hope. That's what I voted for. That's what I tried to get votes for in the streets for so many months. But this chapter, we are yet to see. So let's focus on the positive for a moment. Where's your hope? What do you want the government to do? Where does opportunity lie in Brazil? If you could set the governing agenda for the next five years, what kind of economic policies, what kind of social changes do you think could help improve the lives of people in poorer communities in Brazil, reduce socioeconomic inequality, but also reduce the extent of social polarization so that Brazil doesn't just escape the threat of these extremist forces for five years, but actually gets onto a sounder political footing for the next 20 or 30 years. So my hopes come from this diversity I've been speaking so much about. So there is USP, the University of Sao Paulo, it's the best university in Brazil. And when I was a child, I was like, okay, I'll never go to that university. Like it's only for the elite. And I think two or three years ago, it was the first time that half of the students at USP came from public schools. That's huge. Like USP is the university, it's like our Harvard, like <laughs> that is forming the future politicians and the future scientists. And half of its students come from poor backgrounds, come from poor families. They are diverse. And I do think you can just put that back in the box. I do think that's a change for itself. Politicians are working really hard to make sure that this diversity doesn't happen in politics as well. But that's my source of hope, like knowing that we'll have so many amazing women, Black people, like LGBT people occupying all sorts of power places. So that's my biggest hope. And in terms of the future, this is also related to what I just said, but we have to bet on education. Bolsonaro was the worst president for education ever. Brazil went back to 20 years in dropout rates. Half of our children don't know how to read and write at this moment. But maybe this is the opportunity we have to make basic education a priority, to see all this diverse talent we have out there and understand that this is the best social and economic policy you can have. And I always say that I had all my projects vetoed by Bolsonaro and questioned in the court, but I was able to, like, with a broad coalition to win, and I have over 10 land projects that were approved. And I always joke that, okay, and there are 120 that I wasn't able to approve. So there's so much evidence. And Brazil has walked a very good path in terms of making the whole society accept basic income. And it was very questioned in the past. So there are so many studies showing that if you will give high school students some amount of money after each year they finish, you decrease dropout rates by one third. There's so much we can do. There's so much evidence. There are so many discussions that were frozen under Bolsonaro that I have this big hope that we'll have dialogue again and that we'll be able as a society to make this bet in basic education. 
Well, I hope you succeed, Tabata, and I hope that Brazil succeeds. Me too. <laughs> and regardless of what happens, I will be here fighting. And that's one thing I'm certain of. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for the invitation. It was an honor. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.